You're listening to Second Stories, created and produced by Second Story with me, Abigail Brocker, as your host. Second Story is a nonprofit based in Northern Virginia, working to provide safe havens and opportunities to grow and thrive to youth in crisis and their families. We help homeless youth and youth in crisis step away from their first story, one often marked by abuse, hardship, and crisis, and write their own second story, full of hope and promise. Today, we talk to Nandrin, Second Story's Vice President of Community-Based Programs. She leads Second Story's efforts in our broader community, our drop-in family resource centers, after-school teen centers, safe youth projects, and computer learning center, and our newest initiative, Opportunity Neighborhoods. When we talk about the most vulnerable in our communities, we are often referring to many families we serve through these programs. They struggle with poverty and disconnection, human trafficking and gang violence, poor living conditions, and a lack of access to many of the services that the rest of us take for granted. Our programs provide safety and opportunities for the kids and avenues for empowerment as well as immediate need support for the families. And when COVID-19 hit, this became all the more important. Nandra tells us about the unique needs of these communities, why COVID-19 has been especially challenging for them, and what we are doing to help. Hey, Nandrid. Hey. Thank you so much for being willing to do this. Let's start off. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, your role at the organization, how long you've been here, and why you care about this work? Sure. So I've been at Second Story for 16 years. And so my role is to oversee the programs that constitute the community-based services, so these are after-school programs, the Colmore Teen Center, the Colmore Family Resource Center, and the Springfield Family Resource Center. And we are now embarking in a new initiative called Opportunity Neighborhoods. And basically, uh, I studied social work, and I come from Venezuela. I moved here as a teenager. And um, the mission of Second Story is very dear to me, the fact that we are able to come in critical times and um, transform the lives or help those that are in need transform their lives and be able to thrive and providing the safe havens is something that is dear to me and I have been given the opportunity to do so and in conjunction of course to all the staff and all the donors and and all the stakeholders in the co- in communities in Fairfax County that unfortunately are suffering you know as cities in Colmore in Falls Church Bailey's Crossroads and in that area of Springfield where we are located at, as well as Annandale. So those, those are the reasons why I have stayed, I guess, with the organization for as long as I have, because it's extremely rewarding to be able to serve people that are in need, um, immigrants. Um, those specific packets are the population that concentrates there are the majority immigrants and refugees. So it's, it's, it's one angle that I particularly love to be able to assist and help. Can you tell me a little bit more about that, the communities, the populations that we serve through community-based services? Why are we specifically in Colmore and Springfield? What are the situations of some of those families? 
Yes. Originally, we started when Second Story was Alternative House. We were approached by the county more than 20 years ago when in the area of Full Church in uh, Seven Corners, there was a lot of violence. There was gang presence. And the county and, you know, other organizations and Alternative House got together to see how they could mitigate the problem. And one of the things that was established was the Colmore Teen Center so that the teens had an opportunity to have a constructive place where they could have, you know, supervision, where they could be mentored, where they have a safe haven. And so the space was donated by Old Salem Village and the county helped support and in second story, Alternative House then uh, was able to then start the Colmore Teen Center. So unfortunately, that area in Colmore is extreme low income area. And throughout history, they had been, you know, it's apartment complexes. It's a large apartment, you know, complex. People live there. And of course, they share housing. And, right. you know, there's, uh, there's multiple families uh, living in one place. They improvise and have, you know, rent to others. And so it's overcrowded situation. But of course, even though it's not subsidized by the government, so it is private housing, but it's extremely expensive to live there at the same time. So that's why you have those conditions. Right. So similar, that same situation happens in Springfield. It's called Springfield Gardens, and it's the same situation. It's also private. It's not subsidized by the government. However, that you have the same situation. I would say that Colmore has an even greater need, but Springfield is not left behind. And then we created after that the after-school programs because we wanted to to serve a younger uh, age in order to prevent even more effectively against gang recruitment. And so we started the Colmore Save Youth Project the Annandale Save Youth Project and the Springfield Save Youth Project. And the Annandale, we make sure to recruit the kids that were extremely low income since the programs are free. So it was to help those in need. And so we happen to serve a lot of the children that live, um, again, in an apartment complex that is extremely low income. And so they happen to be, um, the majority happen to be Latino just because of the way, you know, where they're situated and how they help each other. And right. so it creates that concentration. In Falls Church, we also have refugees that live in the Bailey's Crossroads area. And so we have Middle Easterns also, in addition to uh, Hispanics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and even just hearing you say that, it sounds like this is an area that would be more at risk for coronavirus for a lot of reasons, but one of them being the fact that it's overcrowded, so people can't socially distance the way that some of us might be able to. Yes. Can you tell me about what maybe a day looked like in the Family Resource Center between the drop-in center, the Safe Youth Project, and then down the road, the teen center, what that might have looked like six months ago, and then what it looks like now after the changes we've had to make. Sure. The Colmore Family Resource Center, um, it is a drop-in center so that the people that live in that community are able to go to the center whenever they need assistance. So if it is to read a letter and be translated to, you know, notarize, to get assistance with filling out forms, to be uh, referred to uh, legal help, um, all of that is done at the drop-in um, services area that we have. And then in addition to that, we have two after-school programs, one for younger kids studying at first grade, 
and then the other one for fifth and sixth grade. So that happens in the afternoon. In the mornings, we also do English as a second language classes and also sewing classes, workshops. There are prevention topics for the community. So all that is done in a typical day. We also used to do food distributions weekly and, and of course, the free legal services as well, pro bono, that um, yeah. we offer there. So all of that was offered as well as in Springfield, in addition to a free clinic, which is the Mason and Partners Clinic from George Mason University. And then in the Colmore Teen Center, we had, of course, it's also a drop-in center for teens, but it was a place where they were able to receive meals, to receive mentoring, uh, tutoring, uh, field trips, and of course, as a place where, you know, it's air-conditioned during the summer and it has heat during the winter, um, and of course, it has the familiar staff that you know become basically part of the family, and they are able to be connected to all the resources they need. So that was the typical nature of all of our programs was you know to provide the safe place where you know if it's too hot, I can go to the center. If I'm hungry, I know they can help me. I need a form, I know they can help me with that. If I have a question, they can do it in my language. So all that happened. Um, you know, in all our, in our centers. And how about now? What has changed? We were open until March 23rd, um, until we were told that because, you know, the county guidelines, we couldn't continue seeing people in person. So we had to close the teen center, the after-school programs, and the family resource centers. However, we established food distribution sites. So we opened the one in Colmore, and we did it twice, it's Tuesdays and Thursdays, and then in Springfield again, Tuesdays and Thursdays. And um, then we opened one in Bailey's Crossroads um, in the Carousel Court Apartments in Seminary Road as well. Um, so that's on Wednesdays. And then staff also, um, what we did was we got referrals from parent liaisons in the schools um, that told us that there were some families that could not come to our food distribution because they were actually sick with COVID-19. Mm. So we started doing food deliveries to their homes. We also mm. did that. We're still doing actually um, that. And also in Annandale, since we don't have a distribution site, we are delivering groceries and meals to the participants of the after-school programs, to their apartments. So we started doing that. And of course, we also started doing assistance from a, assistance from a distance. You know, we put all the literature at the doors of the centers. And when people called the center or when they came to the center, they were able to see the phone numbers of the staff. And then staff was able to then work from home and, you know, assist with everything remotely. Our youth, we did the same. Uh, we started the virtual uh, meetings. Um, at first, we tried to do it more fun activities to sort of test it out and, you know, engage with them and then try to help them with the learning packets, also advocating so that, you know, it was one computer per household. But if you requested it at the school, they could give you more if you need it, you know, if you have multiple oh, children. So. Yeah. That was something that we helped the families that we serve that did not speak English, um, you know, try to navigate. And of course, we have participated in all the committees that the county activated um, so that all the community providers could, you know, share resources and learn 
and collaborate. Can you tell me about how we've been staying connected to the youth that have been in our program since we can't see them? Yes. So, you know, as I mentioned before, you know, these children and teenagers are children and teenagers that do not have, of course, means, do not have space. Mm -hmm. And regularly, we represented that, you know, we represented that basement, quote unquote, that a teenager has where they can see their friends and listen to music or, Mm -hmm. or have a moment to themselves. So the Mm -hmm. teen center offered that option. And the after school programs as well. And I see that, uh, you know, right now, they are suffering a lot, not being able to have that. And staff make sure to continue being engaged with them uh, so that they knew that even though we cannot see them in person, they're still a phone call away. They're still a Zoom meeting away. And and staff actually did the rounds, does the rounds weekly to provide them with whatever they need, hygiene products, um, gift cards. And for them to, to know that even though they feel isolated, maybe, and that everything has changed, something remains, you know, remains constant. And it is those relationships that they have with these meaningful adults in their lives that it's not just staff at the center. They are mentors and friends to these, you know, teens and to the children and their families. So so that's something that the staff has, um, you know, learned how to do, actually. I I held some of the first meetings and we brainstormed a lot of how to do it and so that we make sure that they continue interested and engaged and, and it has been very successful. So I think it was very important to do that because not only it was about the pandemic, but then also the problems that we had been having with, you know, social, social justice and Absolutely. to be able to process with them um, all these tensions and problems and they, they have somebody to, you know, to be able to process this with. You know, that's interesting. That's something that's come up a lot when I've spoken with staff throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, we talk so much about all the safety that we provide the youth that we serve. And I think the first thing to come to mind for people when we talk about safety is physical spaces, which we obviously do provide. But there's also this element, I think, of relational and emotional safety that we also provide that has really come through in the past few months when we haven't been able to meet physically. And it's really highlighted all of the mentorship and the relationships mm-hmm. that we foster. And that's really cool. I think that it, that it's just being highlighted, all that we're able to do in that way. Definitely. I was at the food distribution to take photos, and I was so impressed and overwhelmed in a good way <laughs> about mm-hmm. how big of an operation it is. You know, I've been hearing for months that we've been doing the food distribution. I've been seeing photos, of course, but there's a difference, I think, in seeing it in person. Can you tell us about how that all came together? Because I know that we're giving out a lot of food every day to a lot of people. What? How many people are we serving? How have we been getting the food? How is that going logistically? So through what I just explained, we, in addition to uh, the programs, have something called the Colmore Partners Meetings Yes, that I lead monthly and also Springfield Partners Meetings. So we have a lot of uh, network you know, of people that... Mm-hmm. We work together, we share resources. So during this time, of course, more than ever, it wasn't different. So it was a lot of collaboration. And then, like I said, Fairfax County activated also the community providers um, team meetings, and we were part of that. And so through those meetings, through connections, we were able to secure donations of food. So the World Central Kitchen was providing us meals. Steva Truck was providing us meals. Also, uh, Dar al-Hijra, the mosque, um, was sharing with us a lot of vegetables and dry goods 
and then the, the, the neighbors at the Lake Barcroft, when they learned what we were doing, they were very inspired and they started organizing, donating to us gift cards, donating dry goods, food for others, who always helps us, of course, continue to do so. Mm-hmm. And then other donors. We couldn't have volunteers right. present because of the COVID-19 restrictions. So right. the staff, um, you know, practicing social distancing, we all basically pitched in. And yeah. so it's a lot of, you know, picking up donations, bringing donations, receiving donations, sorting donations, putting them in bags. And the able movers, um, they were magnificent. They started picking up a lot of the runs for us. So they were picking up donations. Then they also started donating food that they were purchasing and and bringing it to us. Mm -hmm. So it was a teamwork, um, you know, a lot of networking, a lot of teamwork that happened, which was a blessing. And of course, labor intensive. So in Fulmore, we averaged 300 uh, people in the line. Wow. In Springfield, it was around 90 and then in um, Carousel, we were doing ar- around 30 people. It's, it's a smaller complex. Yeah. But then in addition to that, we were delivering meals to 12 families that were referred to us and to 15 of the kids from Annandale and mm-hmm. some of the teenagers that couldn't either mm-hmm. come to the food distribution line. We uh, repurposed some of the funds from our um, contracts from Fairfax County so that we could purchase food. Hopefully the lines will decrease as people mm-hmm. go back to work, but yeah. we're not seeing that decreasing as we would have liked yet. Yeah, that was my follow-up question was, is there this gap now between families who are still in need of food who are not yet going back to work or aren't bringing their income back up, but the businesses that were providing the food going back? Yes, and that is an issue. So. Yeah. You know, a lot of um, people that have, you know, jobs, flexible jobs where you, you know, they were quarantined, they were still getting paid. Right. The situation is different in, in the places where we are serving, you know, those communities. They have essential, some of them were essential workers and they were fine, but yet, you know, like some of them were cleaning houses and they were told, do not come to right. work because we don't want right. you home. Even some construction projects, especially if they were residential, indoors, mm. they were told not to come back. So that was an issue. A lot of them, of course, didn't, they were not eligible for the stimulus package. So yeah. that was an right. also hurdle. And so, yeah, so we see that right now in Colmore is that in, in Springfield and everywhere, basically, is that they're not, everybody's not going back to normal as other people are. Unfortunately, some of them lost their jobs too. Some of those businesses when, you know, uh, they're not longer opening back either. So we are seeing that the lines are not really decreasing, but yet we have lost some of the donations because yeah. those businesses are going back to business. Right. We've been really talking about this this whole time, all of the things that kind of are stacked against these families with being ineligible for the stimulus package and being low income already and also having jobs that don't go back right away. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's enough, but is there more to it that makes these families so vulnerable that when something like this happens, even day-to-day needs like food, they don't have? You know, they don't qualify for a lot of those benefits. They don't qualify for unemployment, the big majority either. So, Which is yeah, significant. So- Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this definitely puts them on, you know, the high risk. And then one of the issues why it's attacking so badly this population is that, you know, just not having the 
access to healthcare uh, even before COVID-19. Yes. So, you know, mm. not having access to adequate nutrition. So having, you know, diabetes and high blood pressure and all of these problems that, you know, it makes you even a higher target for COVID-19. And then the stress alone, you know, the immune system, yeah. we all know that is stronger if you're not stressed out, right. but not being able to make ends meet, you know, right now that it is so hot and that you cannot afford to have AC in your apartment and it's 100 degrees. Right. And then right. you are sick and you cannot isolate at all. Or people are sick there in your apartment and you have to be by them. You have to go out and see how you can get food. So there's so many stressors and so many problems that even before COVID-19 were present. And now they're much more magnified because of what's happening. Yeah. It was really cool for me to see staff who, you know, I usually see more often, but hadn't seen in months because of everything. And I usually see them in these very routine positions because they, they're they after school, so they have the same youth every day. Or even when things change a lot at the drop-in centers, they're in the same center every day, but their roles have totally shifted. And it was really interesting for me to see that firsthand and see how different their lives are right now. How has that gone for staff? Because I know they're in the same communities that they served before, but they're doing very different jobs for the most part, right? Yes. So I am extremely grateful that I have that team as I do. Mm -hmm. You know, they always say that when you choose to work for a nonprofit, you do it because definitely you have a passion for it. And they are completely uh, proving that. I mean, the beginning, of course, it was so scary to think, okay, how are we going to do this? You know, how do we protect ourselves? And yeah. They they came, they stepped up to the plate, they came and responded. And I remember even when we were worried about not having enough PPE and they would arrive mm-hmm. from their vehicles already, everybody wearing gloves, everybody wearing a mask. Mm-hmm. Well, it was like prepared. And, mm-hmm. you know, not only that, but then they always worried. They, they're like, okay, how can we help? And, you know, we can do this. And, you know, so-and-so offered to do this. And we had mm-hmm. volunteers that in our sewing classes that were sewing the masks and then staff was mobilizing to find the donation of fabric and and then not hesitating to say we need to up the list for the people that are sick and I'll drive and, you know, and mm. I go and help. And that was very, for me, it, I was very grateful that they don't mind rolling yeah. up their sleeves and just responding to the need. So that has been something that I definitely, like I said, I admire. And yeah. I am so grateful that that's a team that I have and that we shared the same vision that, well, you have to do what you have to do when you have to help others. So in a very professional way, you know, they continue to come. They they don't mind. Like I said, and like you said, it's totally different. It's a lot of physical work. Yeah. And we and weren't it's hot. Yes, we weren't strangers to that because, you know, we did food distribution and clothing distribution, right. but not to right. this magnitude. Right. So I mean, we went from, you know, doing a full distribution of 60 people at most or 40 to 300 um, in one location. Mm. Yeah. So, yes, it's much different, definitely. But everybody understands that if we are stressed out and if we think that uh, we have things to worry about, they can only imagine how are they doing. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I know that there's really no way of knowing. Of course, no, none of us know how long this whole pandemic will go on. But how are you taking planning for the future? How are you approaching 
thinking about the next month, the next couple of months, planning for how much food we're going to need for distribution, considering it's hard to know what things will look like in a few weeks. What has that been like for you? So that's been definitely a big challenge. Actually, even today, we were shocked to see that, you know, we started going and purchasing the food ourselves with the funds. And we saw that we spent close to $1,000 and it's not going to be enough. So we need to come, you know, mm. go back tomorrow, actually, at one. We're mm. going to go back again. So one of the things that our executive director also pointed out, exactly what you just said, is that, you know, we needed to prepare to project what's going to be looking like. So we've had donations. We're hoping that the donations that we received are going to take us to those days when everything else dries out so we can tap into that and, you know, just continue to to buy. We try to buy staple foods that we know are wholesome and they are nutritious so that if people are coming to get it and they, and they don't necessarily eat it that day, they can make it for the weekend. So those are the choices that we are doing. And I guess it's obvious because when we went to Costco, um, the person ringing us said, is this for charity? You know? So he obviously, uh, by looking at what we were buying, he, he put two and two together that we're trying to buy things that are like that. Yeah, and just hoping for the best. But you guys also have done a great work, you know, trying to educate our Thanks. supporters into, you know, what what we're facing and, you know, the magnitude of of help that we are going to be needing Yeah. in order to be able to continue responding. What do you think is important for, say, a middle-class family who has been impacted by COVID, but also has some good safety nets and has savings, and maybe one provider lost their job and the other provider is still working or something like that, and has capacity to help, but also, like most people, their lives have changed. What do you think are things that are really important for them to understand about the greater needs of our community? And what are some of the best things that a family like that can be doing to support the youth and families that we're serving through community-based services? In the midst of all of these, I heard uh, one of a mental health experts that explained that when you are faced in a crisis, that includes everyone, in order to decrease anxiety, trying to be part of a solution helps. And I think that's what anyone in this moment should do is trying to see, is there anything that they could do in order to help? And one good example of this is the community of Lake Barcroft, how, yeah. you know, they are next door to the Colmore in Falls Church, uh, the Colmore community, and they have organized themselves um, to do, like I said, they have placed boxes outside of their house. The whole neighborhood has pitched in little by little, but everybody yeah. a little bit counted. One student from the university that lives there, she decided to do masks and she sold them to the neighbors in order to gather funds. And she gathered quite a bit to donate and like that. So it was very creative ways that people that even if you don't have the funds, you might have something that could help. And that really alleviates the anxiety that you might feel yourself because we are all going through this crisis together. You know, some of us may be, you know, more lucky than others, but we are all experiencing distress. When we feel that we're giving something to help others, it seems to be able to even help us. So I think that's the advice that I would give is to just analyze if there is anything in our power that we can do from making a mask to gathering the friends and say, um, is there anything that you can give? Somebody did a Zoom party where people donated. So, you know, very creative ways where we are able to always have something to give to others. Definitely. 
Thank you so much for taking the time to tell us about this. It's been, you know, of all of our staff, everything we do has had to change, but it's been really inspiring for me specifically to see your staff because I think your staff have been asked to pivot what they're doing in a, in a really significant way, whereas some of us have been asked to do smaller things like just stay at home and not go to meetings or something like that, like me. Mm -hmm. And it was cool, especially for me to be in person and see that. And I'm really glad that we've been able to so quickly and effectively change what we were doing to meet a need. And I'm glad that you were able to tell us about that. Mm -hmm. So thanks for giving us the time. Yeah, well, thank you, Abigail, for also for all you do. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Second Stories. If you enjoyed this episode, we would be so thankful if you rated our podcast and left us a review. Be sure to also hit subscribe so you don't miss our next episode. Second Stories is created and produced by Second Story with support from our technical director, Franklin Vaughn. Second Story is a nonprofit based in Northern Virginia that works to provide safe havens and opportunities to grow and thrive to youth in crisis and their families. Learn more about what Second Story does and how you can support us at second-story.org. We hope you'll join us next time.